This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Morvan Lalouette. He is a PhD candidate at the University of Kent and Dr. Ben Noble. He is an associate professor of politics at University College of London. They are the co-authors, along with Jan Mati Dolban, of the just published Navalny, Putin's Nemesis and Russia's Future. That is the first full-length biography account of a, a pivotal figure in Russian politics and society right now. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for uh, agreeing to be on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You have the first mover advantage. Congratulations. Uh, so uh, I, I understand the tale that you told about why you wrote this book was simple. Does one of you want to chime in with the very simplistic and, boy, let's fix this problem reason why you wrote this book? Yeah, well, it was just being inundated with questions from people who don't follow Russian politics to uh, for us to say, okay, what are the resources that will allow us to make sense of who Alexei Navalny is? And those requests for information peaked really when Navalny returned to Russia at the beginning of this year. And my next door neighbour at CIS, as in the academic who has their office next door to me on the top floor of the of the CIS building, the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at UCL, Dr. Sean Hanley said, well, if you can't find a book, if there isn't a book out there, write it yourself. So I sent a Twitter message to Morvan and Jan on the 29th of January, and the rest is history. And you, you three are all at different institutions, but you're all young academics. How, how did you happen to know each other and that you would be able to work together on this project so quickly? Because this is a... F- this book was produced rapidly, written rapidly, produced rapidly, distributed rapidly. Uh, we knew each other from Twitter, uh, and uh, I had met Jan once, but I didn't know Ben. And uh, yeah, we were a bit active on Twitter, and this is how Ben Noble fa- found us. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd met Jan once at a conference, but never met Morvan, but knew that they were both doing excellent work. And I think it's, if we think that Twitter sometimes is a bit of a hellscape, this is one success story that it makes, it can make you aware of people, it puts people on your radar. And so I knew that they were producing independently really good research. So I thought if I am going to be able to put together a team to write a book on Navalny at speed, these are the two to do it. 
Excellent. Well, uh, the, I, I agree with you uh, at least on one point there, that uh, a rare positive usage of social media, <laughs> this should be trumpeted because uh, in my own experience, I, I haven't had that yet. Uh, congratulations. So uh, th- this book is important. Navalny is an important figure. In the, pre- in the green room and in discussions beforehand, uh, I observed to both of you that I um, have a concern, and I think your book addresses it really nicely, why I think it, it, it should be uh, read closely by people following Russia, about the difference between the per- Western perception, the Russia watcher perception of Navalny, and Navalny himself. And your book is structured in a very nice way to, I think, make sure readers get a sense of Navalny in his context, not how Russia watchers want to see Navalny. Can you describe how you've set up the book, kind of the three silos, and how that addresses that that perception issue? It goes back to the origin story for the book. I think that we were frustrated as people who have been following Alexei Navalny independently before his poisoning and before his return to Russia at the beginning of this year. We were frustrated by the media coverage, less the Russia watching community coverage, but the media coverage in the West about Alexei Navalny and about Russian politics more broadly, it can be very manichaean, very black and white, very good versus bad, Navalny versus Putin, good versus evil. And that narrative, that simplistic narrative was being politicized in a way that meant that people couldn't understand certain elements of the Navalny story. For example, Amnesty International labeling him a prisoner of conscience, but then taking it away, pointing to past statements that he's made, and then relabeling him a prisoner of conscience. So I think that added to that sense of complexity. And we wanted to write a book that broke down that black and white approach that binary approach to understanding Navalny and Russia more broadly. Uh, And we could do that because it's not as if we've got any skin in the game. We're external academics. We can say we're going to look at the shades of grey without that being interpreted necessarily as political. Yeah, if I may just add to this, and I can then explain the three three silos, as she said, there's another uh, type of politicization that we wanted to avoid is either on the one hand, overblowing the importance of Navalny and saying, well, if there was a free election tomorrow in Russia, Navalny would defeat Putin outright because he's that beacon of freedom for all Russians. And on the other hand, that, uh, well, Kremlin pro-Kremlin talking point that Navalny is just a blogger. And this is a more subtle politicization surrounding Navalny case that we wanted to avoid. And by putting Navalny in, in, in context, by looking at what kind of support does he actually have in Russia, try to, to convey what's the, the real place of, Russia, uh, of Navalny in Russian politics today. And so how we did this is in the first three chapters after the introduction, we divided Navalny's uh, career, Navalny's activities in, in, in three strands, the anti-corruption activist, the politician, and the protester. So, of course, this is, in a sense, artificial, because Navalny has been these three roles for most, much, much of his life and active career in politics, but we thought that... Um, since we're not going down the traditional biography route with, with uh, uh, precise chapters, uh, I don't know, childhood, youth, and, and then uh, business career, whatever, uh, we felt that this simplification uh, 
could help the reader uh, grasp the also the breadth of, of uh, Navalny's activity, which is which is clearly something that sets him apart from other opposition politicians in Russia today. I wonder if if part of the issue isn't structural in terms of media that a newspaper account doesn't have the time or the depth to to point out the subtleties, uh, whereas a book or academics can, and a newspaper account, even a good one, you know, uh, the big read in the FT, even that type of account still is strongly biased by the expectations of what they'd like to see in Navalny, which is what my, my issue uh, for Western media treatment of him as opposed to what he is. And I think, again, you're you're putting out, not in the traditional biographical sense, but in, in his functional sense, these three different functions that he has followed uh, is, is very, very uh, helpful. Let's, let's you know, kind of dive into the Navalny that, that um, the newspaper readers don't see. Well, I was just going to say that it sounds uh, maybe a bit of a cliche that the academics come along and say, oh, it's far more complicated than <laughs> <laughs> you non-academics think it is. And hopefully we're, we're doing more than that, uh, because you're right to say that it's not just a function of uh, the existing assumptions of people. It's not necessarily just a function of the length of a newspaper piece not being able to get into the subtlety. It's driven by what people want to see in Navalny, this desire in the West to see somebody who's gonna be a natural ally of them. That for example, if he were to be elected president of the Russian Federation, then he'd immediately be on board with the Western agenda. What we show in the book is that that's just not the case. And that wishful thinking can lead to real problems. It can lead to those moments of, of, of jarring when uh, people in the West think they know how Navalny is going to react to a certain incident, but he reacts differently and then they maybe feel betrayed. But Navalny doesn't owe anything to the West. He's a Russian politician in Russia, granted now behind bars. And there are certainly people in the West who want to help him. But uh, at the end of the day, his fate is going to be decided in the country. And so the book, yes, you're quite right, is an attempt to say, stop looking at Navalny through Western glasses, try and understand where he's coming from, what he's saying, why what he has said has changed over time by thinking about the Russian context and how that's evolved over the last 20 years. And I think that the Western context is that the, the projection of what I would call classical liberalism onto Navalny is a function of the Western some Russian watchers or the mass media wanting to see a particular outcome, a projection, and not just seeing them through Western eyes, but literally what they would like to see happen in Russia. This has been an issue for centuries, really, as uh, Westerners have engaged uh, Russia and project their own expectations. And, and Navalny is almost perfect. He's telegenic. He speaks perfectly. He's really good on YouTube. I mean, the, the technology skills there, he makes very good videos. There's no doubt about it. So it's easy to project onto him what a Western observer or writer would like to see. But let's let's delve into Navalny, the lawyer, Navalny, the businessman, the corruption candidate, uh, corruption campaigner. Very interesting stuff. Really good videos. And then finally, the the uh, Navalny, the the politician. Do you want to start with the corruption band or or? Sure. Um... You go for it. Move on. <laughs> well, so so in the in the. Um... Uh, protester, uh, sorry, anti-corruption activist chapter, we, we kind of trace what um, made Navalny famous in the first place uh, and what is, in a sense, his distinctive contribution to, to what you have called the 
the liberal tradition or, or the liberal camp in, in Russia, which was to bring the issue of corruption uh, to the fore and to use it as a way to mobilize people and to draw uh, uh, people to liberalism. Because, of course, Navalny is not uh, the typical liberal although he does advocate some definitely liberal uh, politi- uh, policies and he has liberal politics. Of course, he advocates a rule of law state, democracy, independence of justice, free media, etc. So all this is present in his agenda. But at the time where he, he starts digging into corruption, I think that that he, he finds this as an attractive graphic um, way to draw people to this agenda that is for obvious reason for everyone for anyone who knows Russia, uh, completely unattractive to people. And um, and so with different steps from minority shareholder activism, his blog, then his investigation on, on state's procurements using the new openness and, and government in Russia on the, in the Medvedev years, not only brings both a, a technical approach to corruption, where he shows with legal documents, databases, extra, how corruption actually operates in Russia. And he finds a way to package it in, as you said, Daniel, uh, a, a fun, engaging way, even before YouTube, his blog was actually fun to read with, with uh, memes. And, 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 and this is, of course, what draw Western, drew and still draw Westerners to him. Can I, can I ask one question about the bureaucratic yeah. campaign or, because, or the, the corruption campaign, or, and it's about Russian bureaucracy. I think Western observers of Navalny on the corruption side are amazed by the documents that he digs up. And I think there's an explanation there they're not very familiar with, which is, as Russia watchers, we're all uh, accustomed to the extremely bureaucratic nature of Russian political culture, Soviet political culture, and Russian political culture before that. And so I think uh, someone who's not that familiar with that would be surprised that the documents that they dig up even existed in the first place mm. and then become available one way or another. But I think the, he's been very successful as a, as a uh, publicizing corruption because the to some extent that Russian political culture can't even help itself, it produces voluminous documentation of corruption in a way that maybe some other political cultures would have put less pen to paper and document the transfer of properties quite the same way that uh, Russia seems to do. Is that Has that come up in conversations before about how almost easy it was for his team to, to document the corruption? I don't think anyone would say that it's easy, but I think you're quite right that their capacity to do it is based on the idea that there are lots of bits of paper that maybe many bureaucrats don't think anybody is going to bother to look at. And certainly in my own research, I've capitalised on that with the State Duma. They make lots of information available, I think, because they think nobody is going to have the patience to sift through it all. So you can find some juicy nuggets. Of course, what Navani and his team have dug up are far more interesting than what I dig up in the Duma, but it's the same logic that just the sheer amount of paper means that it's a happy hunting ground to find stuff. We should also say, though, that this is another important dimension of the book. We don't just look at Navalny and those three strands, we also look at how he has adapted and how the Kremlin has adapted to him over time. And one of those clear adaptations is that 
when Navalny and his team carry out these investigations, exploit the openness, the sometimes surprising openness of bureaucracy in terms of the information that you can get, then the authorities respond to that and they cut it down. They uh, bring down the barrier. They make it much more opaque. They make it much more difficult for people to find the those juicy nuggets that I mentioned. And so the Kremlin definitely adapts to those openings that Navalny and his team exploit. And I should say, you know, uh, Navalny is responsible for the aesthetic and for the broad thrust, the use of social media. But one of the reasons why his videos are so slick is because he's got a really good team around him who have been able to bring their own skill set. So it's not just Navalny alone. And that's one of the things we try and make clear in the book. One of the reasons why yeah, these the investigations, yeah. it, it, exactly. One of the reasons why the investigations are so impressive is because he's got lots of people working flat out at the same time. In the last few weeks, uh, those people have had to come to the fore, uh, Leonid Volkov in particular, but uh, Luba Sobel, who's had to flee. One more question on the, on the corruption side. And I, I think you addressed this, but again, it struck me. Silo about corruption and his success in uh, showing the extensive corruption, a kleptocracy, has had, I think, zero impact on the polity. And that's, an asser- that's a subjective assertion. Feel free to disagree. Uh, that is... Russians turn a blind eye, don't care. It's not enough to make a difference. What, what is the weight? We've seen the, you can see the weight of protest. You can see the weight of the politician of all in rigged elections and so forth, but you, you can see it. But for all, other than YouTube views, the anti-corruption activity which has involved not just Navalny and Medvedev, but many of high-ranking officials, seems to have had zero impact other than in the West. I think, again, feel free to disagree. I'm just kind of uh, waving a flag in front of you. On its own, corruption isn't going to move the needle. How how do you respond to that? Well, I think, first of all, to say that, I mean, Russians did react by, by, and in decent numbers, uh, around the hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, to, to this, in particular, to the Medvedev uh, investigation in 2017, and where that year Navalny was able, with that YouTube video and with his political appeal, to bring people out to the streets. So, so now, the then the political system itself has not necessarily reacted to this. But if you look at, at um, what Russians tend to consider as the, as the most important problems their country face, they would they will list corruption among the most important ones. Um, now, uh, it's possible that uh, this focus on corruption has diminishing returns because, of course, well, you had Medvedev, then you had Putin, and then. I mean, it can only go downhill from there. And if the political system is not reactive to this pressure, uh, I think it can obviously foster a, a sense of powerlessness and, and a sense of... Uh, and the second issue, I think, beyond this issue of diminishing returns is, is whether people are ready in order to fight corruptions to follow an adventurous politician advocating liberal policies. And then we turn back at the experience of the 1990s, where, where you had one politician, the first president of Russia, who campaigned uh, already under the Soviet Union on the anti-corruption, anti-enrichment of the elite platform. And we know how the story ended. And, and this is not necessarily, this points to, to probably the biggest challenge for, for people in, like Navalny in, in today's Russia. 
maybe Ben wants to add something. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I was just going to add, Dan, to your point on it not really uh, changing the needle. We can point to a particular example of that. When the Putin's Palace video was released on YouTube at the beginning of this year, we saw, I mean, now it's had more than 180 million views. Levada did a poll shortly after it was released, and it turned out that a quarter of the adult population in Russia had watched it. But then when they asked questions like, has it affected your perception of the regime or your level of support for Putin? We didn't see much change. So we got the idea that these investigations are really slick. Lots of people watch them. They sort of do lead to a certain type of splash, but it's not as if it translates automatically into people gasping and saying, oh, goodness, I didn't know this about the current political regime. Let's go onto the street. Let's, uh, you know, man the barricade. That's not the case. Uh, So I definitely agree with what Morvan has said about powerlessness, a sense that this is an issue that's been on the agenda for a while as a critique of the political system, and maybe any shock value that it could have has gone. But that's also one of the reasons why Navalny, when he tried to run in the 2018 presidential election, he wasn't just a one-trick pony. He moved beyond anti-corruption as a message and put together uh, a platform, including some left-wing policies, and that is a sort of indication of him being a politician, to put together a broad coalition and maybe be being slightly more populist than the liberal uh, image that some people might have of him um, that wouldn't necessarily resonate with broader sections of the Russian population. Well, let's let's use that as a, a shift from from corruption to both politics and protesting, the two other silos that you have, and they're very close to one another. It's an interesting choice that you've made to split them because I, I kind of see them as, as overlapping clearly. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a, a challenging time to being a protester in Russia is not an easy calling. Being a politician in Russia is an even more challenging calling. Uh, he's tried both. He's tried to be a politician via protests, and he's he's supported his protests via claims to being a politician. But it's it's uh, been hard. And again, his politics are not the politics that we ascribe to him. They're his politics. Let's let's go into that path. Well, for me, the starting point of, of Navalny's politics is that he is a liberal and he has been for a very long time. He, he in a very interesting book of interviews he made with a journalist in the beginning of the 2010s, he said, like, when he was a teenager already, he found himself a liberal. Um, Defined as? Uh, defined first uh, in the political context at the time as someone who supported Yeltsin, who supported privatizations, who supported, was clearly anti-Soviet, who wanted Russia to be a democracy whatever that means, and a capitalist uh, free market economy, whatever that could mean to Russians uh, circa 1991. And he cheered when when Navalny, uh, Boris Yeltsin, excuse me, uh, crushed uh, the Russian parliament, the Soviet Supreme, in, in 1993. And then uh, he explains this as a result of his uh, difficult business career. Uh, he realized that the promises had not been kept, that the principles of liberalism had not been upheld because 
well, the 1993 crisis where you have a president shelling his own parliament, then the 1996 re-election of Boris Yeltsin, which was probably not the freest and fairest election that uh, the world has known. And so he, he and, and this is in his own rendering of how it happened, he begins to harbor doubts, to harbor doubts about liberalism. And uh, he also begins to harbor doubts about liberalism because he finds they're too socially liberal, as we would understand in the West. They're too soft on immigration, they're politically correct. And so these, these two threads, let's say, uh, uh, the, the, his failing business career, the fact that, as he said, he realized that in money, in, in Russia, sorry, uh, money grows from power, his problems with immigration, with the situation in, in the Caucasus, this all brings him to, to try and experiment new agendas, new slogans, new ideas that we try to, to follow across across the book. And so again, that's the, the uh, I think, while Navalny and, and in many ways more visibly until a few years ago, uh, Yavlinsky move away from liberalism the he in Russia, however that's defined the Russian kind of Russia watchers still aren't moving away and are, are you know, again, projecting onto uh, them. And now Yavlinsky's made it very, very clear that he can't be tagged as a liberal anymore based on his most recent uh, political performance. He's still hanging on in, in, the, in the Duma, but as a, uh, really a friend of the regime. So uh, he, he evolves as a character through the experience of, of the rough and tumble experience of the 1990s in, in Russia. I was a graduate student for half of that decade there, and it was indeed uh, uh, shifting sands, to say the least, in terms of, of politics, not to mention everything else. And, and then the protest element. So as politics change, but he becomes almost like a professional protester. Uh, and that, that's an interesting element to its high visibility, gets people out on the streets, but one again has to say, okay, what, what does this achieve? And the answer is we don't know yet, but it's, it's a facet of professional organization of protests and getting people out. Can you describe that a little bit? Well, it's clear that when Navalny tries to form a political party, the usual organizational manifestation that we think of, that we associate with politicians, he's frustrated at every turn. He isn't able to set up a political party. And so he says, OK, but I still need to form a movement in order to be a, a significant influential political force. And so he turns to protest as the way to advertise, to sort of boost his profile, but also to get supporters on board. And that's very much the reason why, in your mind, Dan, you say the political and the protest, they're fused together. We separate it in the book because we try and tell the story of Navalny attempting to be a quote-unquote normal politician, running in elections. So we talk about him running in the 2013 Moscow mayoral race and trying to run in the 2018 presidential election. Uh, but protest is a way in which he creates uh, a Russia-wide movement. He moves out from the confines of Moscow and tries to be seen as a political figure of national significance. And in the book, one of the things that we think is a, a novel contribution, so even to those who know lots about Alexei Navalny, know all the stuff in the rest of the book, in chapter four, when we look at protest, we think that's an original contribution because we draw on Jan's work, his research, his conversations, the interviews that he did with Navalny's supporters and activists in the regions between 2017 and 2021. And with that research, you get the sense of Navalny broadening out, creating this organization uh, in lieu of having a political party. But you also get a view of Navalny from the bottom up. 
you say that one of the problems with uh, commentary on Navalny in Russia is we're using our Western assumptions and our Western viewpoints. It also means that we can look at Navalny and Russian politics from the top down. But with the voices that we get from Jan's research, we can see people complaining about certain features of Navalny, that yes, he claims to be a Democrat, and yet he runs his network of regional offices in a very top-down fashion. We also get people's different views on certain policy positions that he has, whether they agree with uh, his calls for a relatively strict um, uh, visa regime with workers from Central Asia. So chapter four, hopefully, is it is good for multiple reasons, for making it clear how the political is related to the protest, for how he set up this organisational network, which I should say was being dissolved when we were finishing the book. It was that weird, really weird situation of constructing the narrative of creation of an organisational structure, and we were reading in the news every day it being attacked and then eventually being dissolved. So that's that's the way that we try and separate out the story of the political and the protest. Uh, and it's just really shocking the degree to which that has all crumbled uh, over the last six months. So let's let's use that as a segue to kind of uh, some some other issues that I wanted to address briefly. Is, uh, and and uh, the first is the state associated with the election, but maybe not associated with the election. The state's crackdown has been extreme. What, what has been the, the kind of follow-up to your book and your experience? The book came out a few months ago in Europe first, now just coming out in, in North America, getting a lot of coverage. What has been, you know, your, your experience or your, your, if you had to write an addendum, an appendix to the book, what, what would it be uh, given, given what's happened the last few months since you uh, sent the typescript off? It's a silence, uh, apparently. It's a tricky one. (laughs) It it is a tricky one because as Ben said, um, and, and as I think we should insist upon is that we have witnessed in almost a year a bit more uh, tremendous transformations in, in, in Russian politics. This is the most massive political repression that we know under Putin. Uh, it can be argued that Navalny's organization was the most important organization independent from the Kremlin and the opposition in, in Russia today. And it has been repressed accordingly. There had never been so many arrests after a demonstration in post-Soviet Russia. There had men, never been so many criminal cases brought against protesters. So, so we're seeing, and of course, uh, how can I forget this? Uh, there had never been such a high-profile opposition leader uh, being the victim of an assassination attempt. So, so this is these are dramatic events that we, we followed as we were working through the book. And the, the strength, the pace, the breadth of the, the, the repression makes it hard not to, to write a kind of obituary to, to Navalny's movements. And, um, uh, and, and this is something, again, to insist on that dimension that we did not uh, foresee, and I think that nobody foresaw it uh, when we started writing. It happened in a couple of months. And when we started discussing the end of January, we were like, Navalny will go to jail, that seems for sure, but maybe his organization will be able to tread on. This didn't happen, and, and it's, it's very difficult to see now, given how the political system is closing in Russia, where this is going and where you can get uh, glimmers of hope, let's say. Which is, again, the Western bias. What, what, any specific response uh, to, the, uh, to the book that uh, I think 
you know, it's a, the post book narrative is just in many ways as interesting as the narrative. I understand what's going on in Russia, but what, what has been your reception uh, uh, among the Russia watchers and, and the media? I'll definitely get to that, but I just wanted to add something that we uh, are currently having discussions about whether we need to write an epilogue for some of the international translations. And our response at the moment, it might change very quickly, but our response is that the direction of travel at the end in the concluding chapter is really clear that actually the book shouldn't be that dated. It's clear in the the final pages that we're saying, look, this is what is going to happen. Granted, in the book, we don't predict the extent to which the movement has been crushed. And yet, it's not as if we feel an urgent need to add that extra chapter, even if we might do it when the paperback, paperback comes out. Who knows? On the reception... It's been really interesting to get uh, reactions from different voices. On the whole, we're really pleased with the reception. And the word that keeps coming up is that it's balanced and balanced in a good way. That it's not as if we've written uh, a document that is seen as coming from within Navalny's team and we're here just to applaud Navalny. No, we don't shy from tackling some of the darker pages, the more controversial pages of um, his history and those of his team members. So that I, I think if you know, we're going to come up with one word that seems to be the reaction to the book, it's that it's it's balanced. And also it's been nice to hear that for Russia watchers, even if they might know some of the detail, especially at the beginning of the book with the general setup, who is Alexei Navalny, there is content in there that is new to them or that they'd forgotten or that they hadn't seen put together in one narrative to get the sense of flow to see how the different elements of Navalny's life um, interacted with each other. And Morvan has been on uh, various Russian media to talk about the book. So maybe he can speak about the reaction on those platforms. Yes, please. Um, the, the reaction, I, I went to Dost uh, the day before they were labeled a foreign agent. Uh, I hope this is only a coincidence. Uh, and I went uh, to Echa tour and I found that the reception was uh, positive. One of the questions that I found um, really interesting that also gets back to your point about perception between Russia and the West is that I, I got asked like, if uh, Navalny was a Western politician, where would he stand on the uh, political spectrum? And I think this is uh, also speaks to that question of uh, mirror perceptions, where you get the impression that, and it's a question that Navalny has been asked several times, like, oh, if you were an American politician, would you be a Democrat? Would you be a Republican, for example? And I found that question very interesting because it points to that also that need for, for many people who follow Russian politics and are Russians to, to find their, their, their way into the, the Russian Russian and Western political spectrum, which are obviously built in very, very different ways. Um, Hence, again, this example of projection. <laughs> so uh, uh, has Margarita Simeonen uh, give you, given you a call and uh, she's <laughs> to, to share her, her impressions? So let me just share with you as a reaction as a historian uh, in placing, and perhaps we'll wrap up with this, the placing uh, Navalny in the context of uh, Russian opposition leaders, which is a very interesting term when applied to Russia, because it's, it's, hard, it's hard to be an opposition leader. But stating back to the 19th century and mostly in exile in the West or internal exile, you could argue that uh, what Navalny unfortunately is currently experiencing is internal exile, as it were. And that you know these are opposition voices against a regime that 
uh, isn't going anywhere or has shown little evidence of that. Now, that, that's not a popular view, certainly among my circle of Western liberal friends, ever hopeful about a positive outcome for Russia, but uh, I'll just start, throw it out there. And, and so I think there's, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to see Navalny in a historical context as well. I realized that was not your primary, primary mandate to start with Herzen and end with uh, Navalny, but that, that's one of the ways I was uh, in, interpreting it as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. The book is Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, Jan Malti Dalban, and then I'm joined by Morvan Lalouette and Ben Noble. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Much. Yeah, thank you.